Welcome to this BTOG podcast. My name is Tom Newsom-Davis. I am the chair-elect of BTOG. This is part of our regular podcast series entitled BTOG Does, where we have informal chats with experts in their fields and tackle the most important questions we all face in the diagnosis and treatment of thoracic cancers. It is important to say that sponsors of BTOG do not have any role whatsoever in the planning, delivery, content of anything discussed today. Hello and welcome to another BTOG podcast. I'm Tom Newsom-Davis, chair-elect of the British Thoracic Oncology Group. And here we are in early February, and I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Najib Rahman, who is a professor in respiratory medicine in sunny Oxford, um, and is also the director of the Oxford Respiratory Trials Unit. Um, Naj, welcome to our podcast. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, it's my great pleasure. So what we're talking about today is to do with BTS, British Thoracic Society Guidelines on Plural Disease, Plural Guidelines, which we thought we would focus on because they have relevance to everyone um, in all uh, faculties of uh, thoracic oncology um, and in all of our roles. And now you're one of the authors on this, so I'm going to pick your brains about it. And I wonder if I might start by asking you, because some people may not know, what is BTS? I mean, it's one of our friendly organisations, which BTOG's delighted to be allied with, but who are BTS? Um, and tell me about these guidelines and who wrote them. Sure. Um, so thanks, Tom. So BTS is the British Thoracic Society. Um, the BTS are our national society for thoracic physicians and indeed thoracic surgeons as well, but it's populated mainly by pulmonologists or uh, respiratory physicians, pulmonary physicians, whatever you want to say. Um, uh, uh, BTS are really at the forefront of producing practice guidelines for pulmonary physicians uh, in a number of areas. And actually, if we think about plural disease, they've done a really amazing job over the years. So uh, the first BTS plural guideline came out in the early 2000s. That was updated in 2010. And now the latest ones that we're discussing today, that's 2023. And actually, there was a, a great need for an update because there's been a lot of randomized trials uh, published in the area of thoracic oncology, which should be relevant to our discussion. Um, if you'd like to talk a little bit about who wrote the guidelines, well, I co-chaired them with two other respiratory physicians. So um, Mark Roberts, who's in Mansfield, and then Nick Maskell, who's um, in Bristol and well-known to BTOG as well. Yeah. Um, but we were very careful, and the BTS were great at kind of making sure that it was a, um, a multi-professional uh, committee, and that included, of course, respiratory physicians, some people well-known to BTOG, such as Matt Everson and uh, Kevin Blythe with his yeah. hat. Uh, but then also pathology, Andrew Nicholson, many of your uh, colleagues will know him, and then surgeons such as Eric Lynn. So uh, we did want to take a, a broad brush approach. Yeah, BTOG luminaries in, in there. And, and actually, I think I, I love the idea of it being multidisciplinary. So this is really not just for the respiratory physicians by the respiratory physicians, it's by everyone for everyone. Sure. Um, wh why do we need these? Um, in, in oncology, if I think about medical oncology, we have big European guidelines, we tend not to rewrite UK guidelines. What, what's the value of, of BTS writing these? Yeah, it's a good question, Tom. I actually think with no um, sort of promotion of BTS here, I actually think BTS have been absolutely at the forefront of pushing plural disease mm. as a subspecialty. Um, and we happen to be lucky in the UK that we've done a lot of the randomized trials mm. that have moved the needle. So if, if I was to look at the American and the European Respiratory and Thoracic Societies, 
they don't have a single umbrella plural guideline. Um, and indeed, uh, because a lot of the RCTs and a lot of the good quality data is coming out of the UK, um, I, I think it's really pertinent that the BTS continue to produce these under a single umbrella, firstly. Yeah. Um, secondly, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's been some pretty big advances in the last 10, 13 years that mean that we do have to update because plural disease, and indeed we'll come on to it, diagnosis of malignant plural diffusion, the management of malignant plural disease, um, it's really shifted over the last 13 years. So clinicians on the ground need to understand the risks and the benefits of various different approaches the varying bits of evidence and also um, the fact that there are areas that we're not quite sure what to do and then having some expert um, committee views on on which way you should go for now and what the best new um, research areas are is pretty valuable I think. Absolutely but I remember one of my first BTOGs mesobats being described there and I've seen the evolution of, of that area over the years so it is an area that does keep changing. Um, broadly speaking what are the main areas the guidelines are covering? And just for the audience, we're going to just pick out two of the ones most relevant to oncology, because there are a couple of others which are less oncology relevant. But what, what are the main subjects of the guidelines? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, we were persuaded quite rightly not to write a definitive textbook on the whole of plural disease, and that's quite <laughs> correct. So um, we, we went with the normal PICO format, so very specific evidence-based questions under four main umbrellas. So the two relevant to our discussion today are the management of malignant plural effusion and then the diagnosis of undiagnosed unilateral effusion, of which at least 50% in most people's practices will end up being malignancy. Uh, it does also cover pneumothorax and its management and plural infection and its management perhaps a bit less relevant to our discussion today so we'll, we'll bin the last two uh for, for the moment and we're going to focus perhaps first on undiagnosed unilateral plural effusions i mean anyone who sits in mdt we see this every day every week um and you guys as respiratory physicians do indeed see it every day um what are the main um focuses of the recommendations maybe starting on on imaging do do they have particular recommendations what we should and shouldn't do and perhaps also patient types we should be focusing on yeah for sure so um, I think there's a few different areas that have changed which would be worth highlighting um, the first is uh, CT scans continue to be kind of the workhorse in this situation and uh, we did a, a lot of fairly deep analysis of the sensitivity and specificity of CT for the diagnosis of malignancy, mm. for example. As as you and your um, audience will know, CT is a pretty good test, but it's not a perfect test. So yeah. if, if, if it's got certain malignant features, plural thickening beyond a centimetre nodularity, then that's got a pretty good sensitivity for the diagnosis of malignant plural disease. But uh, one of the points I'd like to make is that the other way that doesn't quite work. So if you've got those features, you can be pretty confident it's malignant. If you haven't got those features, you can't be that confident it is not malignant. And thinking about MDTs, quite often our radiologists say this is not a malignant effusion. In mm. fact, the data suggests that the negative predictive value of a negative CT is in the region of only 60%. And in those cases, we need to go a bit further with cytology and biopsy, which we'll go on to talk about. Um, there are certainly, uh, it's becoming clear from the data, there are at-risk groups where the CT is even less sensitive and indeed the cytology is even less sensitive. Interestingly, those are patients exposed 
of asbestos, for example, simply because mesothelioma becomes more likely and somehow mesothelioma has a very low cytological yield. So mm. I think we are moving towards some degree of personalization. If a patient's got a high pretest probability of meso, um, it's more likely we'll need to be doing biopsies, but CT is certainly in the workup. So that's the first point I'd make. The second is, you may know, Tom, that uh, in the hands of respiratory physicians, thoracic ultrasound is now a daily occurrence. We're using mm -hmm. it at the bedside all the time, and we're trained to quite a high degree. Um, there are some good data now suggesting that we can diagnose malignant effusion pretty effectively using thoracic ultrasound. Now, neither I or you would ever do an ultrasound and say, well, hey, that's malignant. What we would do, however, is to say this patient's got high risk malignant features and then triage them down a biopsy or an aspiration route. And, and what, are they, what are the ultrasound features that would make yeah. you think it's more likely to be malignant? What can you see there that you can't see perhaps on a on a falsely reassuring CT? Yes, indeed. So um, I think there's shared features and then distinct features. So the shared features are those of pleural thickening, pleural nodularity, mm -hmm. which is shared between both modalities. Um, CT has some advantages, the 3D nature of it, of course, and it can look at the um, the medial mediastinum much better and the lymph nodes and the lung. Um, the thoracic or pleural ultrasound is really good at looking at the visceral pleura. So visceral pleural nodules are much more visible on an ultrasound than they are on the CT. And then uh, things like septations and also diaphragm abnormalities much better visible on your ultrasound than they are on the CT. So there's one comparative study done here in Oxford, actually, uh, that shows that ultrasound, at least in the hands of expert radiologists, is actually more sensitive and specific than CT. Now, I, I'm not suggesting that we replace CT. Of course not. It's useful for lots of reasons. But if in the triage process of doing a safe intervention, we are seeing malignant features, then that should be noted and help guide kind of the trajectory of the patient. And just getting back to that um, idea about the falsely reassuring CT scan and that that 60% uh, number you gave us was really stuck in my mind. Does that mean that in practice, if you have a, a patient in your MDT with a unilateral effusion, even though the CT is saying, well, look, I can't see anything, anything sinister there, every patient essentially warrants investigation? Yeah, um, I think we Not need to every single patient, but you know, sure, sure. nearly every patient would do that because you you just can't trust a normal CT. Uh, I think that's generically true, Tom. And okay, well, let's let's give a real example. You've got a T two A lesion. We're aiming for um, curative intent through saber or surgery, and mm -hmm. there's a significant effusion. Do you and I have the confidence from a negative radiology report from the effusion that this is definitely not malignant? We really don't. And in mm. that situation, we have to pursue that further. Now, that opens a whole can of worms about how we should pursue that further. Should it be PET-CT scan? I'm sure we'll come to that. Should it be an aspiration? Well, cytology is not 100%, as most people know. Should it be an inspection at thoracoscopy or a biopsy? That's another uh, whole discussion. And then the finality of that is if the patient's going to undergo, for example, a VATS lung resection, well, the surgeons are going to look in at the beginning of their procedure and potentially see a pleura that's studded with malignant pleural mm. disease. Now, to me, that's the wrong pathway for the patient because you've prepped them for surgery, you've done the lung function, you've created expectation in the patient and the clinical service that they'll have a resection. And it's actually a, a, a real tragedy if they end up on the table having a look in it's actually yeah. stage four disease and then yeah. pull back out again. So by yeah. MDT, we pursue it quite hard. Yeah. That's really helpful. So we, we've touched upon ultrasound and, and CT. You, you, you glance past PET scan. So if we got undiagnosed unilateral effusions, 
uh, is pets your your go-to or is this for select cases select um scenarios so it's definitely not our go-to um let me just explain the thinking behind that if if you've got clear malignant disease on the ct the, the pet's really not helpful right um, yeah why because you already know they have stage yeah. four disease so n no point in doing that uh, we possibly need to rediscuss mesothelium but we'll do that at the end perhaps um, for cases where the CT is not demonstrating clear malignant pleural disease, then the PET, the evidence, it's limited, but the evidence would suggest that it has a slightly increased sensitivity from about 70% to about 80%, but not much higher than 80, 85%. So in fact, no, we don't go down the PET route because obviously that doesn't get us tissue confirmation. So normally if we've got a high risk patient with symptoms, maybe a non-malignant looking CT, we're going to move forward with aspiration and a pleural biopsy, usually at thoracoscopy, as opposed to going down the PET-CT route. Now, if you've done all of those things, so we've been in, we've got fluid that's negative, we've done a biopsy that's negative, there is a real interesting question as to whether we should then do a PET-CT scan. And there is, in fact, a randomized trial called TARGET that has just been published, was not included in the BTS guideline, uh, done by um, Nick Maskell in Bristol, and we were part of it. We randomized patients in that exact situation to either a repeat biopsy, either by CT or other, or PET followed by a directed biopsy. What that study actually showed was that it did not help. So in general, we don't use the, the PET CT um, unless there are very specific things such as a lesion that can't be well characterized by the CT scan. That's really interesting because I think we are doing more and more PET scans and I do sometimes worry we do them without any good evidence behind them. Right. I think these right. investigations should be used advisedly. So you, you segued beautifully there into sampling of fluid, draining, what the guidelines say about how this should be done. Um, and practically speaking, how do we interpret that, given that not every unit has access to readily available thoracic surgery at drop of a hat? What's the uh, what's the general take on drains and how we should do them? Yeah, sure. So I think there's very clear messaging in the guideline, quite rightly, and it's evidence-based that all fluid drainage procedures should be done under ultrasound by a trained operator. There's no excuse now for tapping on the chest, as perhaps you and I did in the beginning yeah, of our career. Back in the day. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it should all be done yeah. um, with ultrasound guidance, either real time or with marking the spot and then doing the drainage straight away. For um, malignant diagnostics specifically, Tom, um, there is data that you should send in the region of 50 mils of pleural fluid for cytology. Yeah. Now, um, the data is a bit nuanced, and if you can only get about 30 mils out, we, we consider 25 mils to be reasonable. But if that comes up as a negative, it's not unreasonable if it was 25 mils to send further fluid. Yeah. In my practice, we send around 100 mils each time, and then you're pretty covered. Having said that, cytology overall has a sensitivity in the region of 60% for all malignancy, so it's pretty bad. And there's some pretty nice data now looking at final malignant diagnosis and uh, cytology sensitivity, and it's very different according to tissue type, as you might expect. Yeah. So just to give a few headlines here, ovarian has a sensitivity of nearly 90%, so it's really rather good breast about 90%, lung adeno about 70%, but lung squame down to about 20% and meso down at, at about 10%. Um, if I could just develop that a bit further, I guess we as respiratory physicians need not just to say, hey, look, it's cancer over to you. Mm. The first question you guys will be asking us is what's the molecular subtype? What's the right. drive and mutation? So if if we then have a slightly bigger picture, which is how often does the first cytology sample 
result in final molecular diagnosis, that number is actually very poor indeed. It's down at about 30% of all comers. And the guideline is very much pushing towards an earlier biopsy, especially if on ultrasound you're seeing abnormalities. There's an encouragement there that in the same sitting, we as respiratory physicians, if you have the skills, take pleural fluid, but also do an image-guided biopsy in the same sitting for the patient. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and um, Neil Nabani talks a lot about the, the that poor yield for moleculars from pleural cytology, and that's been borne out in in a couple of reports now. And I, you, you're absolutely right. It's music to my ears, because one of the more most depressing aspects of what we do is having to say to patients, "I'm sorry, I haven't got the moleculars. We'll have to have another go." And pleural cytology can be problematic in that in that way. So we, we know the drain, how the drain should be done, and how much should be sent, but we're also aware of the limitations. So what about Plural biopsies, you, you touched upon that as as perhaps a, certainly an alternative way, maybe a better way. What do the guidelines say about that? So uh, I, I think the guidelines are very clear that the, the optimal method of plural biopsy is thoracoscopic. Now, I'm just going to take a pause there to be clear what exactly I mean by that. Uh, regardless of the operator driving the camera, it means a camera inside a full plural inspection and then decent big biopsies. Now, yeah why do I hesitate about the operator? Because that I'm describing what a surgeon does at VATS. I'm also yep. describing what a, a respiratory physician does at, at a pleuroscopy or thoracoscopy. Um, there are about 50 very active thoracoscopy centers in the UK now, and we're one of them. And we can do this under sedation, local anesthetic, and get the patient home on the same day. Um, so actually, that's becoming very rapidly the optimal method mm. of conducting a pleural biopsy. There are, for a physician doing it, we are good at doing it but we're, we have some limitations so we need there to be a free plural space we need the patient to be fit enough all of that jazz and if that's not the case then we will downgrade in inverted commas to an ultrasound guided biopsy on the same day and there are some technical reasons in terms of the anatomy and, and the lung being adhered that might mean that we we go to a CT guided cutting needle biopsy instead so I guess those are the physician radiologists ones VATS and surgical biopsy remains important and remains an option, especially if you've got a patient with a, a lung that's completely adhered. So yeah. our techniques um, completely rely upon there being a free pleural space so I can maneuver my camera. We are generally not the ones who get in there and then kind of peel the lung from the chest wall. We kind of leave that to our surgeons. Yeah. But of course, doing a surgical VATS is going to be, unless you're very lucky, a process which is going to take a week or two to organise. Because okay. most of us don't work in surgical centres, so we have to rely on that. Um, talking about that, that expansion of the thoracoscopy, plural uh, respiratory-led thoracoscopy services. You say fifty units are now doing that. Is are those numbers continuing to increase? Would we envisage, in ten years' time, for argument's sake, this is routine in every hospital? A bit like you know, e-bus used to be for the very rarefied few, and now it's almost universal. Or do you think it's always going to be a bit of a specialised area? It's a great question that, um, Tom, I, I think um, EBUS is kind of bronchoscopy plus as someone who does EBUS. And so moving from um, bronchoscopy to EBUS is is really just a slight left turn. It's, it's not a huge addition to what you normally do as a respiratory physician. Thoracoscopy is basically a surgical procedure done by physicians. So it's not really the same as a chest drain plus. It's a lot more than that. Mm. And it's it's fully sterile, which bronchoscopy isn't. Uh, it's basically a surgical procedure. So do I think every single centre needs to do thoracoscopy? No. Um, do I think 
that every single patient in the country should have access to thoracoscopy. Yes, I do. Mm. And so um, it, it kind of depends on the local organization. Having said that, some of the most active thoracoscopy centers are in so-called DGHs still, and there's nothing wrong with that either. Mm. So um, is there a problem with a good going DGH with a good plural service starting thoracoscopy? Definitely not. Mm. Um, I, I don't think it matters so much where it's done. I think it matters that people have access. And excuse my ignorant question, but do you have to have an anesthetist present or no, are you an, no, an anesthetic free? Yeah, no, it's not an, uh, an ignorant question at all, actually, Tom. No, we do it all ourselves. So it, we do it under the mm. same sedation as a bronchoscopy. In yeah. fact, we use a little bit less. Um, and then the, the, the sticky question that comes up for pulmonologists is always, well, hang on, surely you need thoracic surgery on site in case you cause a problem. That's not true. We cause more problems with chest strain. Um, and imagine. we don't, we, yeah, exactly. And we don't stop DGHs mm. doing them just because yeah. the thoracic surgeon is not standing there. Brilliant. That's incredibly helpful as, as ever. I've learned vast amounts, which I'll uh, move therefore on to the second bit of the, the, the four, the four, um, main areas, and that's suspected plural malignancy. Um, and some might think the guidelines are going to be the same because it's so similar, but actually that there, there are big differences really in here. So again, maybe starting on imaging again, when we're thinking about a plural malignancy, which is, you say, is likely going to be mesothelioma for most of us, how do the guidelines differ or what do they state in terms of imaging and what we should be doing? Yeah. So um, one of the things, Tom, it should be clear that this BTS guidelines, we specifically did not um, cover mesothelioma because of the really good BTS guidelines on mesothelioma okay. that I was part of a couple of years ago. But it's worth talking about just now. I think for the workup of meso, I think especially in view of MARS 2, I think especially in view of the various surgical bits of data, which I'm very happy to talk about. I personally do not think that there is a rationale for doing PET staging specifically for mesothelioma. At the minute, uh, uh, well, the randomized data is very clear, is it not, that systemic therapy is the right therapy for mesothelioma. And I'm really pleased that we're in a position where we have really good quality options for um, biphasic epithelioid and sarcomatoid now. So that's that's a great reassurance to us and our patients. None of those, to my mind, require a PET CT scan. Now, um, I wouldn't object to an oncologist doing one in order to look for disease response, and that's a whole other conversation. But at the minute, as of 2023 or 2024, I should say, is, <laughs> it, worth, is, is it worth doing a PET CT to really stage them to answer what question? Can they have surgery? My view on this is very clear. Patients with mesothelioma should not have surgery, except in very, very small, highly selected patient groups that perhaps were not represented in Mars 2. To me, if I could just get on my soapbox for a second. Uh, we, 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 we love a soapbox here. Okay, okay, good, Tom. We've got three randomized trials that compare surgery to not surgery in mesothelioma. We've got mesovats, we've got Mars 1, and we have Mars 2. Mm. And, that, and that shows a consistent message, which is that surgery is bad for you in the case of mesothelioma. It's not just that it's more expensive. It's not just that your quality of life goes down. There's active harm from surgery in Mars 1 and Mars 2. And in mesovats, there was no benefit of doing a surgical pleurectomy versus a physician like me giving talc. Yeah. So in my view, surgery has no place in the management of mesothelioma. Now, 
always people are going to say, well, hang on, I've got a 45-year-old with a single encysted pocket of meso. Sure, that, that patient's not represented well within any randomized trial, and then you do what you need to do, no problem. But in the morass of mesothelioma, I don't believe surgery has any place in the therapeutic agenda, and therefore stay accurate staging, or that awful phrase in the literature, which is technically resectable, I think is irrelevant now. Yeah. That's very helpful. That's very helpful. So in, in the guidelines, um, we are therefore, presumably, when it comes to suspected pleural malignancy, we are still talking um, CTs and ultrasounds as, as we were previously. Sure. Yeah. Um, something which I see a, a, a lot of in, in my patients, we're going to move on to talc pleurodesis. You've touched on that. Indwelling pleural catheters, um, VATs surgical pleurodesis decortications sure. maybe he's taking the talc pleurodesis first sure. what do we think the role of that is compared to other approaches yeah so we've now got two large-scale randomized trials one done by my unit one done by the australians that have directly compared talc pleurodesis to indwelling pleural catheter both of them show exactly the same results which is that both interventions improve quality of life, they improve breathlessness, and there isn't a clear winner between the two. So it's basically risks and benefits. Right. The, the benefits of talc pleurodesis are that if it works, it's a one-stop procedure and the patient then doesn't have to have any further procedures. It's successful in about 70 or 75% of cases, so not bad. And is that, sorry to drop you, but is, is that operator dependent? Not as far as we know. It, it's, okay. it's dependent on some other factors, which I'll come back to. Mm -hmm. um, the, the downside is that it has a 25% failure rate, as I've um, enunciated, but also it involves investment of the patient and the healthcare system in between three and seven days in hospital because of the nature of how we do the pleurodesis. So it has some advantages, some disadvantages. The indwelling catheter on the flip side has the advantage that it really doesn't have a failure rate. So if you put it in, it's it's going to be successful in terms of draining the fluid. There is what we call a spontaneous pleurodesis rate. So just with drainage in the region of 20 or 30% of people will run out of fluid and we can remove the catheters two or three months later. Um, and there's no time in hospital. So it's day case insertion. So it has some advantages. The disadvantages, however, are that the adverse event rate is higher with IPCs versus talc, and that's all related to long-term plastic mm. in the chest, so blockage, infection, and so on. The other, and Tom, I'm, I'm now going to step onto a soapbox again. Excellent, uh, two soapboxes. Yeah, that's exactly. Good. Uh, the, the other issue in the data is, if you look at the data, it suggests that talc pleurodesis is associated with more pleural interventions than indwelling pleural catheters because of this failure rate. Mm. So 30% need another pleural intervention. And IPC is associated with less pleural intervention. From the physician-centric point of view, that is true. So that means how often do I need to put a needle in your chest? It is true that IPCs have an advantage over talc. But from the patient point of view, it's not true. Let me explain. The IPC patients drain themselves three times a week, and they do so for the majority of them for the remainder of their entire life, which, as you know, is between four and 12 months, possibly 18 months. Draining yourself three times a week for 18 months is, in my view, not the same as saying no further plural interventions. They're yeah. just doing themselves. Mm. So uh, we, we have to have nuanced discussions with our patients about what they want and what their priority of care is. And that's what the randomized data would suggest we do. And also what we found particularly for uh, older patients, patients living alone is, is right. a is a reliance on district nurse support, which, as we know, sadly can be, I think, patchy would be the euphemistic term. Um, yeah. um, so 
is there any difference in the different makes of ipc we've got rocket we've got plurex we've got others or is it all is it is it pepsi versus coke in terms of yeah. what you put in i i i think they're the same myself yeah. the, the technology is basically the same and the, and the studies have used different catheters and there's never been a head-to-head and -head, nor should there be actually it's yeah. just a bit of plastic uh, yeah. can i just make one point tom which is i've been a bit generic in my discussion of ipc versus talc if the patient is known to have this phenomenon of, of trapped lung then they shouldn't have a pleuridesis so that means when you've done your initial pleural aspiration which you should do to prove that there is clinical benefit for the patient so that's clear we should take a liter and a half or two liters off demonstrate the patient feels better and do an x-ray afterwards to prove that the lung expands so mm. with malignancy it can coat the visceral pleura and then the lung may not expand in those patients talc is not going to work and then they should definitely have ipcs yes. or recurrent aspiration but otherwise it's a free choice and the talc's not going to work because the lung's not exactly. adhering to anything it can't stick to anything because exactly. it's floating free in the yeah, chest exactly. exactly and then again in order to kind of tip my hat at my surgical colleagues in, in the context of a trapped lung, one should consider a surgical decortication. But given our patients who've got stage four lung cancer, for example, largely that's going to be a palliative operation and therefore is not worthwhile doing for the patient, I mean. But there are a subgroup of patients in whom, for example, the indwelling catheter is very um, difficult to manage or it's extremely painful. One should always have a discussion with surgeons to say, look, would you consider doing this and then have an open discussion with the patient? And we've been clear about that in the guidelines. I, I certainly recall a young breast cancer patient of mine. She was only 45, um, 42 or so rather. And uh, she had a trapped lung. We used an indwelling catheter. She just couldn't bear it. It was painful. She couldn't pick up her young son. We sent her for a, um, a, a surgical um, a decortication and that worked very well indeed. Uh, yeah, very interesting. Um, we have therefore covered pleurodesis. We've covered IPC. We've talked how they might be similar in outcome, but different pros and cons. What about VATS um, and other kind of surgical approaches? How do they compare between themselves and to our medical pleurodesis and IPC options? Sure. So um, I think there's two bits of important data. One is meso-VATS. Now, I'm extrapolating from mesothelioma, but meso-VATS tells us very clearly that um, a surgical pleurodesis is no superior or no better, I should say, than a medical pleurodesis. So people should not be triaged for a surgical pleurodesis for the sake of a surgical pleurodesis. The effect is exactly the same, at okay. least in mesothelioma. Now, um, of course, out with from that statement is patients with trapped lung because the surgeons are able to peel the lung, which we can't do. So put trapped lung to the side. And then surgical decortication, again, no strong evidence that that is better than simply doing a talc pleurodesis. So I think largely in these stage four patients, this is a medically managed condition. Um, and we should separate again the mesothelioma patients where a VATS and biopsy and pleurodesis is important as opposed to relying on on cytology. But that's a, that is a slightly separate patient group. Uh, that's absolutely true. And within my practice, Tom, we never diagnose uh, mesothelioma using cytology alone, because yeah. I, especially in the field of immunotherapy, and is it biphasic? I think having a Definitely. even our excellent cytopathologist saying look this is epithelioid we say well no we're going to need multi-site yeah. biopsies yeah. there is one more thing to add into this which is look if we do a thoracoscopy or my surgeons do one and we take biopsies then it's legitimate to put talc in at the same sitting i'm not saying don't do that 
Um, but we can also now insert an IPC in the same sitting. So again, uh, we kind of have options in every direction. From my practice perspective, we have a randomized trial again done by Nick Maskell's group, and we were part of it called TAPS, where we compared thoracoscopic pudrage pleuridesis, as it's mm -hmm. called, to bedside talc slurry, and there was no difference. So uh, it doesn't matter how you get the talc in, just get the talc in. And for an amateur like me, explain to what pudrage is. I mean, it sounds great. Uh, how's that different to your to your slurry, which sounds much less attractive, if you don't mind me saying? It does sound less attractive, but unfortunately it is the same. So uh, the pudrage, essentially, once we've emptied the chest of fluid, we're left with a large pneumothorax. And then into that pneumothorax, we um, blow in dry powder talc and we coat all of the pleural surfaces. The talc slurry is done at the bedside and just mixing up the talc in 50 mils of saline with some lidocaine. Um, it's uh, Although the teaching back in the day, Tom, was, oh, look at this beautiful painting that I've done. And I've got talc into every corner of the pleura <laughs> in fact if you do a ct scan the afternoon of pleuridesis it's all on the diaphragm anyway so right. it doesn't make a difference yeah that's very interesting um and what about fibrinolysis I, I remember starting as a consultant and and we'd have long at the end of the mdt that the various medics would come down from the ward with their with their kind of loctillated diffusions and there'll be long discussions about fibrinolysis is that still done does that have a role um how should we do it when should we do it should we not do it sure so i'm going to separate this out into two categories tom Plural infection, which we're not going to particularly talk about, but just so it's been said, there is good quality randomized trial data from my group actually called the MIS-2 study uh, that demonstrated that a combination of TPA and DNAs improves all clinical outcomes in plural infection. And this is part of standard care now. There's a debate as to whether you should have surgery or whether you should have TPA DNAs, uh, but that's for established plural infection. Quite separate to that is loculated, septated, malignant pleural effusion, mm. which is causing symptoms. And now that this is much more contentious. So there are three randomized trials, which we summarize in the guidelines. All of them show kind of partial benefits. But um, so uh, two of them showed an improvement in breathlessness. One of them showed an improvement in the chest X-ray. The largest study, which is called Time 3, which was conducted by my unit, showed that the x-ray got much better but breathlessness and pleuridesis did not after using single agent urokinase now the problem with that is that we at the time recruited patients who were inpatients with septated malignant effusion and in fact their survival was pretty terrible average of about 50 days after randomization oh. Oh. um so in in the inpatient with septated effusion we say your prognosis is terrible and we will palliate that's fine the tricky patient group are the outpatients who are ambulatory with an indwelling catheter and septated effusion. In those patients, it is legitimate to have a trial of uh, single agent fibrinolytic to try to release the septations. What I would be doing in that situation is to be absolutely clear that it's resulted in an improvement in breathlessness or performance status. And often, as you will know, it doesn't because they're very multi-morbid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is brilliant. We've covered all of those bits and pieces. We have very quickly, in fact, we've ignored really spontaneous pneumothorax, plural infections. Anything you want to touch on there or shall we leave that for our non-oncology colleagues to look at? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, I mean, anybody can look at the guidelines, sure. Uh, there's some pretty big randomized uh, data in pneumothorax now, which I can just summarize very quickly. 
one is that conservative management is becoming more popular, i.e. don't intervene and, and get the patient back in a week for another chest x-ray. If the patient doesn't have many symptoms, that's a legitimate thing to do now, regardless of the size of the pneumothorax. And then in patients who are symptomatic, we can use what we call ambulatory management, which is a drain connected to a home um, one-way valve or a Heimlich device. And that uh, was a randomized trial my colleague Rob Halifax did here in Oxford. So a lot of pneumothorax is now being managed as an outpatient. So those are the big um, uh, revelations for pneumothorax. Plural infection, the, the new big areas are, we understand the microbiology a lot better. It's a lot more complex than we thought. And TPA DNA's combination is a major treatment now. I guess that's the summary. I must say, given the fact I'm six foot three, I think um, I should be taking more of an interest in spontaneous pneumothorax, probably. <laughs> uh, hopefully it won't happen. Um, brilliant. That's, that's the most fantastic summary. Now, um, obviously, um, everyone will have memorized your words, but for those of you who might not have memorized them and can and can regurgitate them, where can we find the guidelines um, and uh, are they available for everyone? They are indeed, Tom. So if you go into your search engine of choice, I won't name a single one, um, <laughs> you, you, you simply write BTS Plural Guidelines 2023, go to the British Thoracic Society website, and they are all downloadable as a PDF. There are two main documents. One is a summary, which gives which gives the recommendations, the evidence-based recommendations, and the good practice points. The other is a longer document that contains all of the um, nuanced discussions and includes all of the data and within that for the pulmonologists on the call um, you have also a procedure guidance document which is telling us the you know the finest way to put in an IPC and how to do a pleural biopsy and so on. Right, that's fabulous. I'm going to challenge you by asking you to give me two or three take-home messages because that's what you do in these things. If, yes. if you were to try to summarize all this in in a couple of important take-home messages what would you what would you say? Yeah I think Tom for BTOG my take-home messages would be Firstly, um, you need to pursue potential plural malignancy. I would not be satisfied with radiological reassurance. Yeah. If, you, if you've got a patient who's got an effusion, you need to pursue that all the way to a biopsy. And ideally, that should be thoracoscopic or surgical in the modern era. That's my view. And then adequate follow-up. Um, I think um, the second take-home message is we have a range of plural interventions for malignant plural disease that work very well indeed. They hugely improve breathlessness and quality of life. You need to have good services that know how to deliver both and then have a nuanced discussion with your patient as to what suits them rather than what suits our medical services. Brilliant. That's fantastic. No, thank you so much for uh, spending your evening talking about that. That's enormously helpful. I've actually downloaded the guidelines. They're on my computer, and I'm going to try to pretend in my next MDT that I know more than I really do. But thank you for joining us, and thank you to the audience for joining us, and I hope you will tune in next month for our next podcast. Thank you for listening and joining us on this podcast. For more information on BTOG, including education events and how to become a member, you can visit us at www.btog.org.